I want you to close your eyes for just a moment and uh, picture, if you will, a train, freight train loaded with cars and the cars being loaded to the brim with goods. Train speeding down the tracks and it approaches a steep drop-off. The conductor tries to pull the brake, let off some of the momentum of the train, but as it's going, the brake doesn't work. It doesn't slow down the cars, it doesn't stop them. Momentum has built now to such a great speed that as it begins to go down the drop-off, instead of easing into a large downhill slope, the train barrels full steam ahead. Certain is the doom of those who are in the way of this train, who do not clear the tracks ahead of it, who stand in front of this runaway engine. That is the certainty, the doom of God's judgment on those who have not repented of their sins. You may open your eyes. For millennia now, prophets and men of God have warned. They have foreseen and declared the things that many men just really would rather deny, that there is a judgment day coming. They've called out to Jew and Gentile, to Greek and barbarian, repent, repent, repent. They call throughout the ages. Judgment that is more certain than your next breath more imminent than any date on your calendar, more sure than money in the bank or the next electric bill. Judgment will not be deterred. It cannot be postponed and it shall not be avoided. The Bible makes this point clear from Genesis to Revelation that judgment is sure. Acts 10, 42, Jesus is said to be the one who judges both the living and the dead. Romans 12, uh, 14, 12, we find that every individual will give account of himself directly to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Jesus reveals all things hidden and known as he pronounces judgment. Isaiah 59, 18, Ezekiel 13, 1830, 3320, and Matthew 16:27 all tell us that judgment will be wet based on the works that we do, not on those of others. Nahum 1:2 declares that God will have vengeance on his enemies. Deuteronomy 32:35, Psalm 94:1, 1 Thessalonians 4:6 all describe a righteous judgment from God. Hebrews 9.27 perhaps says it clearest. It is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. The biblical concept of judgment is that it is a righteous act of God to examine the faithfulness and faithlessness of individuals. It is not vigilante justice where we run around making people pay for their evil works. Justice, right and true, belongs solely to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. This evening, we can watch from the stands, if you will, as judgment plays out before us. We, we see God's judgment day on three in particular. And the first we see begins in verse 7. God's judgment day for Satan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. 
Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's okay to say amen. Sometimes, sometimes judgment is both good and bad. Good if you are one of the ones, good if one of the ones that, that's on God's side and you're watching God's enemies finally get their due. That's what we see in Revelation 20. Last week I said the judgment on Satan that God would perform would be done in two acts. The first act would, would come would be uh, comprised of the reign of Christ where He seals up Satan in the abyss for a thousand years and reigns on the earth. The saints rise and reign with Him. Some have suggested that this is indicative of the church age, that it's, that it's, uh, um, it's a spiritual sort of reign that's going on. That Satan is bound in the sense that the gospel would say that it's a literal thousand year millennium where Christ actually comes to earth, actually sets up a kingdom, actually throws Satan into an abyss. And that this thousand years, whether it's exactly 1,000 years to the day or not, is a literal millennial reign. I don't know for sure because, well, God doesn't make it plain as day. He doesn't say, yes, I'm actually coming back and reigning for a literal thousand years. But he also doesn't say, this is just a spiritual reign. Don't worry about it. What I do know is this. After that first act of judgment, Satan is released. Well, every everybody who's been arrested has to show up to court for the trial, right? And that's exactly what happens. Satan is released. And what does he do as soon as he's released? Well, he does exactly what he was doing before. He goes out and deceives the nations. Look back at verse 8. And it will come and, and will come out, this is the devil, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now, I know, we're, we're, we, ha- we know enough about science to know that earth doesn't have corners, okay? He's just talking about all over the world, alright? But he's coming out from all over the globe, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. We talked about Gog and Magog a few months back when I was preaching through the book of Ezekiel. In chapters 38 and 39, Gog and Magog are being judged. They, they rouse an army and they come and attack Israel. And Ezekiel is talking about this incident that will happen in the future. Where, where the people of Israel are under attack from foreign invading armies. John's day, they had taken this picture that Ezekiel was playing off of. It was, it was very common in apocalyptic literature. They would take this image and they would use it in describing what they saw as things that were to come. But, but John, as he's watching this vision, sees the similarity from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And he says, man, these are so close. I'm going to use Gog and Magog in my description so that when people are reading this, their mind goes back to Ezekiel. And their mind takes in all of these different things that, that are associated with these names. Because what I'm seeing is the actual fulfillment of what all these people were writing about. So he does that throughout this genre 
Gog and Magog represented the multiplied forces of the world against God's people. And here, in this battle, their demise would be decisively divine. God himself would strike them down. In fact, look at how, since we're talking about Ezekiel, look at how Ezekiel describes it. In chapter 39, this is verses 1 through 8, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief priest of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the earth and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field for I have spoken declares the Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands and they shall know that I am the Lord and my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore and the nations shall know that I am the Lord the Holy One in Israel. Behold it is coming and it will be brought about declares the Lord. That is the day of which I have spoken. It doesn't sound much like a battle, does it? Kind of reminds me of another not much like a battle. Maybe, maybe, maybe you know it as Armageddon, supposedly the great war at the end of time. It's not much of a war at all. In fact, there's some similarity in language. He gives them to the beast of the field and to the birds of the air. Do you remember him calling in chapter 19, calling all the birds? Come to the great feast of God. John's recognizing. He wants us to fill in the blanks. He wants us to see the vision. He wants us to hear the clashing of swords as the conquering Christ rides that white horse and destroys his enemies. Can you see it? Can you hear the sounds? Can you see the birds? feasting on mile after mile, acre after acre of the enemies of God? Can you see the blood pouring down the sides of the mountains as God has subdued his foes? I want you to also notice in verse 8, Satan comes out to deceive the nations to gather them for battle. But we all know who's really gathering them for battle, don't we? It's God himself. God has called them to judgment. And so even God, the very God who's in control of all men, even stands in control of Satan himself. No wonder Satan can't resist God's judgment. Verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This massive army marches over the earth, surrounds the people of God. Perhaps they were looking for their own reenactment of the fall of Jerusalem. In that day, here's how the battles would work in in ancient times. You battle a city by surrounding it. You cut off its supplies. Can't get any water or food in. Can't get goods in from, from the surrounding countryside to be able to sell. And you choke off their supply. They can't trade out. They can't bring stuff in. Pretty soon, if they're 
water source was buried somewhere, you'd find it and cut that off so there was no fresh water running into the city. And now you've got a city that's beginning to starve to death. All the while you're working at breaking the walls from the outside, you've got a team of guys who are specially trained building a rampart to get up over the wall while others are digging at the ground beneath the wall and cutting away at the wall at its base so that it will fall so that they can penetrate the defenses and take the city. All the while, you have other men who are specially trained to shoot in arrows and other projectiles into the city to bombard the city to try to kill some of the soldiers that are picking off your guys at the wall so they can break it apart. Every, every ounce of energy goes into bypassing that wall for the attacking army. Every bit, everything that they're doing is to try to choke that city to death. And they think they're going to do this in God's holy city. They think that they're going to be able to surround the people of God, the saints of God, the ones who have dedicated their lives, who haven't received the mark, who haven't worshipped the beast, the ones who are standing firm in the midst of a terrible culture that has gone completely astray. They think that they can break apart the defenses and overtake the saints and destroy them. And this isn't just a few folks. These are armies from all over the world. You could see the planes flying overhead dropping bombs to weaken defenses. Perhaps if it's, if it's in Israel, there's no room for ships directly. But perhaps you could see sh ships bringing in more supplies and more troops through the Mediterranean Sea and then marching across land, bringing more supplies, more ammunition. They think they're going to win because by the book, they have every advantage. There's way more people, way more way more explosives, way more ammo, way more at their disposal. They've got the advantage on every aspect except for one. Instead of reenacting their own Jericho, it was a reenactment of Mount Carmel. You, you remember what happened at Mount Carmel, right? The prophets of Baal dancing and singing and cutting themselves and doing all sorts of things all day long to try to get fire to fall from heaven. And then God's prophet takes his sacrifice, douses it with water, and says, burn, baby, burn. Okay, that might be my paraphrase. And fire falls from heaven. That's exactly what happens here. They think they're going to take the city, and then comes the fire. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then we finally see judgment on Satan. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Having been in prison for a thousand years, Satan is now in torment forever. Can, can you hear the praise of heaven? Finally! I can just hear the saints under the altar. Thank you, God! <laughs> Thank you! Maybe it's a standing ovation. Maybe all the angels of heaven just stand and cheer at, for God at that moment. Because that's the point where finally the adversary, finally the devil himself, the accuser of the saints of God, finally gets his due. He probably doesn't want me to say this, but his due's coming. That's okay. I, I don't care what he thinks, what he wants. 
Now, after having seen God's judgment on Satan, and we could park there a while, but um, that's not the only judgment in this chapter. We see God's judgment day for the dead. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. There is no doubt by now who's seated on the throne. Anybody have a doubt who's on this throne? No? No. No doubt at all. It's none other than God himself. And this time, his presence isn't a presence of glory as it is before. This time, his presence is frightening. So frightening, in fact, earth and the sky try to hide from him. You ever see mama so mad at one kid that all the other kids scurry like cockroaches away? Yeah? You ever been that kid? <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Me too. I've been the other kid too, thinking, oh, well, yep, not right now. <laughs> I'll come back later. <laughs> I'm not asking for mama any favors right now. Um, but even they don't have a place to flee. Look at that. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found. for. Where's the earth going to go? Where is the sky going to go to get away from God? Even they can't hide from his face. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. While all creation seeks to flee from before him, the dead are ushered directly into his presence. Can you hear the knees knocking in terror? Can you see the looks of dread on their faces as they stand before the righteous judge? Can you hear the anguish in their voices or the gulps as each one takes a deep, deep swallow knowing that their doom is near? Hearts must, have been beat, must be beating out of their chests, stomachs turning at the stress of impending judgment. This is no place for someone to be. And I pray that no one here will be facing God at that throne on that judgment day. And, and the judgments, they don't come from an accuser. The accuser's gone. The accuser's been done away with. There's no accuser. There's no defense attorney either. It's just mono agado. It's just you and God standing, you standing before him and there's nothing else to do. He opens up the books and he starts reading your works. How would you like to go through that? Hmm. And I pray, wait, what is, what is that one book over there? You see that one book? Do, do, do you see? Look, at, look, skip ahead to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, there's this one book that's hope. One book doesn't contain your works. Doesn't contain anything that you did. All it has is a list of names. That one book. If, you, if your name is just in that one book, then you can be relieved. You don't have to worry. If your name's in that one book, you get the free pass. If your name's in that one book, your sins have already been atoned for. No need to worry. No need to think of eternal torment. If your name is in that book, alas for those who find themselves before his face and are not found in that book. And just as there's no place for creation to hide, there is no place for the dead to hide either. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, 
each one of them according to what they had done. The justice of God does not bypass any dark alleyway. It does not forego any hidden place. It reaches to the most terrible of places and find men's souls at their deepest of depths. And each is judged according to his works. There's no substitutionary atonement left because they have rejected it. They must atone for their wickedness. This judgment even extends beyond those who are dead. So can I leave you on a good note? Because this is God's judgment day for Satan. It is God's judgment day for the dead. But it is also God's judgment day for death itself. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Just as there is a first resurrection and a second life, a eternal life. There is also a second death. Even death, though, is not immune to the judgment of God. John Donne wrote a poem called Death Be Not Proud. It's in a collection of his called Holy Sonnets. It's a fairly short poem. Let me read it for you. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those who thou thinkst Thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee to go, rest their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swelt'st thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. There is a point where God will bring judgment. There is a day where each one of us stands before him, and we are judged. And no matter how good we might think we are, but for the work of Jesus Christ, we are not good enough. But you see, the work of Christ isn't just about punishing bad people. The work of Christ is about making things right. There is a short snippet in the next chapter where he talks about the ones who are not found in the New Jerusalem because they are punished. But other than that one snippet, you're not going to find death. You're not going to find sin. You're not even going to find tears. For the rest of this book, it's a happy ending. But in order to get to that happy ending, something has to happen first. Because right now, where we stand before God is without any hope. Not unless, not unless we have repented of sins and trusted Christ as our Savior. See, we deserve to be the ones at the white throne. Knees knocking, voices shaking in the presence of the righteous judge who will judge us rightly to be sinful and to deserve an eternal torment. That is us without Christ. It's not just that we're okay people, but Christ makes us a little bit better. It's that we are wretched people. We are sinful people. We are terrible people. And without the forgiveness of sins, we have no hope. Paul 
has a way of saying this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He didn't say you were sick. He didn't say you were on a ventilator. He didn't say you were doing really bad and needed a lot of help. He said dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver that has now been thrown in the lake of fire that we just read about. You were deceived. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not a pretty picture. This is a picture of someone who is so against God that even if he's trying to do good, it's wrecked by the sinfulness in which he does it. It's... It's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. And if that's where the Scripture ended, if that is where it ended, if it ended with us standing at the white throne and being judged according to our sins and being cast into a lake of fire for all eternity, if that is where it ended, well, we'd get what we deserve. There'd be no hope. You know, it doesn't take much. Not on God's part. It doesn't take much. We talk about the greatness of the sacrifice that Christ made. But He really wasn't giving up that much. It's just earthly life. When you're God of the universe and you live for all eternity and, and the only way that anybody knows what living is is because of you, your quality of life is so much better than anybody else could ever possibly know. What's 33 years on earth? It's a drop in the bucket. What's a few hours of agony on a cross when you are the God of the universe? You see, it didn't take much on God's part. That's why it doesn't take much to turn the tide of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Because Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All of these bad things that we're doing. All of the, the spirit that's in work of the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't take much to turn that tide. All it takes is two little words of three letters each. But God and then Everything's totally different. Because at that point, God has intervened. At that point, the Almighty God of the universe has said, I'm not leaving you that way. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, no matter how bad you have been, you can't be more dead than dead. No matter how sinful you have been, no matter how long you have strayed from God, no matter how bad it has been on you, no matter how far away you've wandered from Him, no matter how long you've been gone, but God still works. There'll be a day when it doesn't. There'll be a day when God says no more. It's time to judge, but not today. Because today, some people like to divide history into eras. May I divide history into eras real quick? There is, before God did anything, where He's just relaxing, I don't know. And then there is the what you might call by God, when God is creating creation and it's all good and perfect and holy. And then we sin and we enter a new era. We might call that but God. Because even from the moment of our sin, God has put into place everything we need for redemption. Now some people had to look forward. 
They didn't know Jesus by name. They just knew he was coming. They knew Messiah would come. They knew that God would make all things right. They knew that God would not let his Holy One see decay. They knew that the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They knew these promises, but they didn't quite know how they would work. They knew that there would be a servant who would be bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we would be healed. We, we knew that. We saw that, but we didn't. We couldn't get the whole picture. And then Christ comes on the scene, and he dies a sinless, perfect death to atone for our sinfulness rises from the grave to prove that death ain't got nothing on God. And now we are in this era of but God where we can look back on everything that God has done, accept it by faith, and not have to be still dead, but alive. There's coming a day when but God ends and judgment comes. But not today. Not this moment. Because right now, but God still works. Because God is still extending the invitation.